This is Orson Welles, speaking from London. To keep you in suspense. I had to be everyday grind. Night transmissions. Night transmissions. Night transmissions. Well, hello. I guess the ritual is that this is where I tell you what number of night transmissions this particular program is, and I'm going to do that. This is night transmissions number 126. I actually do that more for me than for you. Having the number up someplace very close to the beginning of the program makes it easier for me to keep track of what's what and when's when. Gonna start off with an episode from Escape, The Bird of Paradise, which originally aired on March the 11th of 1954. Escape was a spinoff from Suspense and ran on CBS from 1947 to 1954, dealing with a wide variety of stories, science fiction, horror, murder, you know, good fun for the whole family. It also had a fondness for stories set in the South Pacific, like this story, The Bird of Paradise, which is adapted from the short story of author and playwright John Russell. The story was first published in Collier's for August the 19th of 1916. John Russell is somebody I had never, ever heard of before choosing this particular episode. Well, actually, I probably had heard the name, but it hadn't really registered that he was as successful and a relatively important a writer as he was. He worked in Hollywood from quite early on. In fact, he worked on the 1931 version of Frankenstein. He got no credit for that. You won't find his name anywhere in there. But that's what I'm told. He also wrote the screenplay for Bo Jest and Lord Jim. Screenplay, mind ya. Some of his own novels and short stories were adapted for the big screen. These include the movie Where the Pavement Ends, The Iron Horse, The Pagan, and The Sea God, all beginning in about 1923. He was born on April the 22nd of 1885 in Davenport, Iowa, the United States and would die 70 years later on March the 6th of 1956 in Santa Monica, California. This particular story centers around a man called Andrew Harbin, who's a wannabe fortune hunter in the South Seas, where he decides, really with more ambition than good sense, that the rare bird business is for him. He does succeed after a fashion. While wandering the Solomon Sea, he succumbs to an illness when barely alive, he and his boat make landfall. Uncertain of where he is, it is here that he finds his opportunity, and his nemesis, of course, and, oh, the most beautiful woman he ever has seen. Well, there's always a woman, ain't there? Here he is held prisoner on the island by a huge man, the biggest man he had ever seen, and is kept as nothing more than a slave. Well, that's not what he had in mind for himself. 
doesn't fit in with his plans at all. Soon, he does manage to escape. Tired of the everyday grind? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you Escape. Escape, designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. an island in the South Pacific, a fortune within your reach, yet standing between you and freedom, keeping you a captive and a slave, is a giant of a man, and the most beautiful woman you've ever seen. Listen now as Escape brings you John Russell's great story, The Bird of Paradise. With his heart full of greed and a hundred pounds in his pocket, Andrew Harbin traveled east through the archipelago into the Solomon Sea. He went questing across many degrees of latitude before he came to the Spice Islands, where, at the ancient town of Ternate, he found the shop of a fat Dutch half-caste. There he was shown into a room that flamed with color, as if all the rainbows of the seas had been trapped and graded and hung up for sale. These were the skins of the birds of paradise, the shyest and rarest of all creatures. Dutchman. Yeah? Which is the prized bird of this lot? Ah, all are very scarce. I didn't ask that. I asked which is the scarcest. I will make you a bargain on any of them. No, no, you won't. I'll make you a bargain. You do not understand. It's not your price to sell I want, but to buy. You have birds for me to buy? Not yet, but I will have. Where do these skins come from? Who knows? From island tribes to the east somewhere? Sea gypsies trade them from coast to coast until they finally arrive near enough to Ternate for me to buy. There'll be no middlemen with me. I'll go direct to the islands. <laughs> Maybe you might kill five, six natives before they cut off your head. Uh, nonsense. Also, the sun is very hot today. Now look here, you stupid Dutchman. I meant no insult, please. And watch your tongue before I twist it out of your fat mouth. All right. It's your life you risk. Come. I will show you something. Now, in this chest is the rarest bird of all. Show me. Purple and gold. I never saw one like that. Yeah. I call it the imperial bird of paradise. Once a year comes to me six skins. No more. Worth 50 times the price of common ones. 50 times? Never comes more than six skins from where? Who knows? The natives with which I trade and the wild sea gypsies with which they trade. Nobody knows. 
But somewhere east is an island, one island where lives the imperial bird of paradise. I'm not looking for fairy tales, Dutchman. Yeah, well, maybe it is only a fairy tale. But you do get a few of these skins, huh? Half dozen a year. No more. Very well, then. Tell me where I can pick up a small cutter. Seaworthy, but cheap. I'm going to find that island. The Solomon Sea is sprinkled with thousands of tiny islands, one very much like another, and all equally wild and uncharted. And very soon after sailing from Ternate, Andrew Harbin could not have told his whereabouts on a map within the dab of his thumb. For three months he wandered fruitlessly through the sea and touched upon island after island. Then, as he was about to give up, he fell ill with a fever. And when a howling gale smashed his vessel on a reef one night, he was cast ashore, dazed, and scarcely caring where he had landed. When morning came, it wasn't the sun that woke him, but a huge monster of a man with cold blue eyes and a thick red beard. <laughs> Uh, Are you dead or you're playing possum? Uh, uh, well, I thought so. Where's your boat, mister? Who's here with you? I'm alone. My boat's wrecked. Trying to land it in a storm? What say the kind of a sailor are you? I, I, I'm not a sailor. Well, what might you be, then? A trader. A businessman. That's a lie. There's no white traders among these islands. Never have been. Well, I'm not exactly a trader. I'm looking for something. Maybe you can help me. After I get a little food and rest, we'll see about that when you tell me what you're looking for. I'm looking for an island. Oh, you are, eh? Well, you're on an island. My island. Your island? Who are you, anyway? I'm Jim O'Ryan. Late second mate of the schooner Mary Friend wrecked that reef out there December 19, three years ago. And you, you're nothing but a sneaking trespasser. I know what you're looking oh, for. No, no, no. I came in, in peace, O'Ryan. I, I don't want your island. Yes, you do. You're one of them fortune hunters, is what you are. I tell you, mister, I've been expecting one of your kind. I've been waiting for you. Waiting? For me? Ah. Uh, or some thief like you. <laughs> but you should have brought along a company and a machine gun or two. I managed you think to cut out this little island by your lonely, the likes of you. Should have broke your neck first off. Why didn't you? Wanted to be sure in my mind just what manner of man you are first. And, sir? You've come to destroy this place. The stink of the world is on you, mister. You're evil, and you're going to be treated like evil. I've come too far to be stopped now, O'Ryan. A fight you want, well, then. And so the huge Orion took Andrew Harbin, now unconscious, slung him under one arm, and climbed the beach to a little clearing in the jungle beyond. There stood a neat bamboo house, and before it, a girl. She was clothed in one gorgeous robe of purple and gold, made all of bird skins. Hundreds of imperial paradise bird skins. And she herself was even more beautiful than they. Oh, Ryan, you lied to me. 
You did not bury them all. <laughs> you told me you buried them, every one. Well, how do you know I didn't dig this land up again, Lagoma? Who do you think it might be now? The captain? It can't be. No. Captain never could have grown so much to spin. Look at this one. Oh, it's a man. Yeah, what's left? A poor specimen of that. Wouldn't it be best to kill him now, Lagoma? No, no. Yeah, now, what's this to bite me? What made you do that, huh? What's come to you? I want him. Don't bury him away in the ground with the others. He's a new white man. I want him to keep. Oh, you do, eh? Well, I had no idea I was bringing a present to strike your fancy so close. <laughs> well, you little spitfire. Now, don't. Can't you touch her, Orion? Oh, look, Nagoma. Your beachcomber's going to be a hero. To lay off. Come on, lad. Give it to me. I'll give it to you. Now, again, get up and try it again. Uh, oh, man, that was good. First fair while I've had the enemy on for three years. Stop, Orion. Uh, Don't spoil him. Don't take him away from me, or I will be very angry. Carry him into the house now before he dies. So, you're awake now, eh? I'm awake. Three days of eating and sleeping's enough. I've got a bit of fever yet. Uh, that'll go. I, I... Oh, I want to thank you and the gum both for your care. Do you now? Well, I, I'd have died otherwise. Ah. My real mistake was not cracking your neck off when the gum laid eyes on you. I forgot the child had seen no other man but me for years. Now she's taken a notion to you. Like a new toy or a, a bit of a poodle dog. You kept me alive. And I let you live such as you are so the gum will have a poodle to play with. Even though you come to this lovely Eden of mine to rob it for dirty gain, you're a thieving buccaneer. I, I'm, I'm an honest trader, Orion. I'm not a thief. Ooh. Maybe Nagoma believes that. Even though I've warned her what you come here for and what kind of a man you are. She's all innocence, that child. Uh, but what is there here to rob you of? <laughs> it's just another island. It's the island you was hunting for, you scum. I'm sorry I am. I ever traded one of them purple bird skins. Now I might have known it to bring greedy devils like yourself smelling for the place. I had to have knives and tobacco and them sea gypsies had taken nothing else. Oh, oh, you mean the uh, birds of paradise, huh? <laughs> Don't be sly with me, you filthy yeah. rat. And forget about Nagoma, too. He thinks you're something grand now. She'll know better when she sees you're put to your proper place. What do you mean? There's no gun on this island, Harbin. Whenever you want to kill me, you'll have to try with your hands. And you can try and I can smash your face again. Why should I try? Well, you're not going to like the jobs I set you to. Jobs? Didn't I tell you? <laughs> There's much to be done by way of public improvement around here. And you'll start in a big pit I've dug clear in a spring of water. What you mean it? You're going to keep me here uh, as a slave? Well, you don't think I'd let you go and know what you do about them birds, do you now? What do I care about your birds? I told you to stop that lion. Now a slave is what you are. 
Till you prove yourself a better man than me, do you see? Andrew Harbin had traveled far and suffered much to find the island of the imperial bird of paradise. But his pains had just begun. Still weak and feverish, he was taken next day to the edge of a black volcanic cliff, and there he was kicked into a great hole some twelve feet deep and with straight, unscalable sides. After him, Orion threw a wooden spade and a bucket and ordered him to dig for a spring that might lie under the rock. And here, Andrew Harbin toiled and sweated like the slave he had become day after day. And here he lived. At noon, Nagoma would bring his food and lower it in a basket. And then, perched on the bank above him, she'd gaze down at him and talk. Are you feeling better today, Andrew? Mm. How could I feel better? Kept down here like a bear in a pit. Sometimes I think you should have never come to this island at all. Mm. Sometimes I wonder what goes on in your head, Nagama. Not much, I suppose. I know little of the world. Only what Orion has told me. Hmm? Oh. I see. But, um... Look, Nagama. Don't you ever want to get away from here? Get out into the world? I've never been in the world. I was going to Port Morsi. A missionary was taking me, but he was drowned when we wrecked. The island where I was born and this one is all I know. Nagama, how would you like to go with me? With you? Ah. Oh, I'd like that, Andrew. But Orion says the world isn't nice. He says people are always stealing and lying and fighting. Nobody has any... Honesty or honor? No, no, no. That's not true. Orion says it is. He says if people knew of us, they'd take our world away. Do you love Orion, Nagama? Huh? You mean like sometimes I comb his beard? <laughs> Maybe. I'd like to comb yours too, Andrew. You have such a pretty yellow beard. All curly. Well, listen, Nagama... You can't comb the beards of two men. You can only love one man. <sighs> you have such funny words, Andrew. I know nothing of these things. What use are so many words? Oh, I'll show you what use they are, Nagoma. Oh? Help me get out of this pit some dark night. Oh, no, Andrew. He put you there. Listen, Nagoma. <clears throat> Do you know why... I came to this island. Orion says it was because you are a thief. No, 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 no. I came here to take you away, Nagama. I, I came to find you and take you back oh. with me. Me? Why, Andrew? Because I love you. And because you're beautiful. There's no one in the world as beautiful as you, Nagama. Is this true, Andrew? Orion told you I came seeking the bird of paradise, didn't he? Yes. Well, he's right. Except for one thing. What one thing, Andrew? You are the bird of paradise. <gasps> oh, Andrew. 
I'm so glad you're still alive. Pirating screen, how's the luck down there? Orion, if you've any decency left, get me out of here. A thief and a spider like you talking of decency. Get to work and find that spring. Ah, by heaven, you're not worth your keep, Harvin. I'm coming down there. You wait till I pitch my rope. Hey, you might have let me climb down that rope instead of kicking me into this hole like you did. The rope's for me. Ivan, you've done mighty little work down here. There's no spring under this rock, Orion, and you know it. Why, you didn't dig for gold, man, or what? precious stones. You're a fortune hunter, are you not? You're insane. Insane am I? Because I want to live here in peace. Because Nagoma's more to me than the riches I can have from the birds. All right. All right. Look... Oh, Ryan, you've got a boat. I saw it. Let me take it and leave here. I thought of that. And it's a million to one chance that you'll ever be able to find your way back, but I won't risk it. What are you going to do with me, then? <laughs> Arvin, a plucky freebooter like you can handle a shovel brisker than you've been doing. Now dig into it, you lazy scumbunker. No, I won't. You won't, eh? Then maybe you're ready to fight. Is that it, lad? No, no. no. <laughs> Ryan, you're hurt here. No, he's not hurt, Nagoma. He needed limbering up his off. I'm coming out now. You promised me, Orion. I promised you what? You said you wouldn't spoil him. Oh, well, now look at him now, Nagoma. He's on his feet again, as good as new. Are you all right, Andrew? I'm all right. See? Now, I've work to do, Nagoman. You can stay and play with your poodle dog if you like. And you keep away from him, Orion. You teach him to be civil, then. Poor Andrew. Would you like some water? No, thanks. You mustn't think Orion's always so mean. You should have seen how patient he was teaching me to read. He taught you to read? Mm, out of a book he saved from the ship. It's the only one we have. The Bible, eh? No. It's a ship's book. The log. The log? Mm. The log of the merry friend? Of course, it's not very interesting. It's full of numbers and the like. Sure, sure, numbers. Longitude and latitude. Every day. Every day till she was wrecked out there. What, Andrew? Uh, listen, uh, uh, Goma, Goma, I'm a far better educated man than Orion. I, I can teach you many wonderful things he's never heard of. Can you, Andrew? Of course. But uh, you'll have to bring the book with you. Well, what good would that do, Andrew? You down there and me up here. Listen to me, Goma. All the things I have to teach, I must whisper to you with, with my lips against your ear. Do you understand? They truly wonderful things, Andrew. Oh, wonderful things, Nagoma. But, but don't you see? I'll have to get out of here first. But how can you get out? The rope. Orion's rope. You can tie it and drop it down and leave it hanging. And then when it's dark, I'll come out and meet you on the beach. 
Well, I am going to be very angry. I You'll know. never know. Tonight, Nakoma, bring the book with you to the beach. I'll meet you there, where Orion's boat is anchored. Uh, all right, Andrew. And maybe I can comb your pretty yellow beard? Oh, yes. Yes, Nagoma. Yes, of course. Andrew Harbin had known many women in many different kinds. But Nagoma's almost incredible simplicity was something new and startling. Because of it, however, he regained his freedom. And when night came, he climbed up the rope and made his way to the beach, his wooden shovel in hand in case Orion should stumble on them. Nagoma was waiting, as she had promised. And in the moonlight, she seemed more than ever like the imperial bird of paradise. He put out his hand and touched her priceless robe where it hung across one shoulder. Andrew, you've come out. Orion will kill you if he finds us. It's worth the risk, Nagama. Oh, I did a very bad thing to listen to you and let you out. I was a bad girl, Andrew. Why did you make me? Nagama, my little wild bird, I must teach you what it is to love. You promised to teach me many wonderful things, Andrew. Yeah. Here, I brought a book, The Log of the Merry Friend. Oh, good. I'll put it in my belt. Ah, yeah. But you were going to teach me from it. There's no time now, Nagoma. Later. Later? When we're at sea on Orion's boat. You'll come with me. Oh, you will, won't you? You want me, Andrew? Why, oh, you know I do. And the birds of paradise? Well, I told you. You're what I came here after. Nagoma! Nagoma! It's Orion. Nagoma! There, he's on the beach there, near his boat. He hasn't seen us. Let's hide, Andrew. Hurry. He's coming this way. Behind that palm there. I'll fix him this time. Not with the shadow, Andrew. No, quiet. no. You'll be quiet. Andrew! I got him. I've won the Gilmore. I've won. You killed him. No, he isn't dead, but I've got the log. I'll come back and strip this island. I'll take a thousand skins. I'll be rich. There won't be a bird left when I'm through. The log, Andrew. That's what you wanted the log for. It's as good as a map. It's better. It wasn't you teach me wonderful things. Well, what do you need to know? I'm going to be rich. But I was right. You are only a thief. But, uh, I, I want you too, Nagama. Me too. Orion wants only me. He cares for none riches. Orion's a fool. That we're wasting time. Let's get to the boat and put to sea before he comes around. No, Andrew. Huh? You go. I'm staying here. What? You want the skins more than you want me. You lied about coming here just for uh, me. What difference does it make? You better hurry, Andrew. All right, all right. Stay then if that's what you want. Wait. Uh. Before you go, kiss me just once. Kiss you? <laughs> You're an odd girl. Please? Oh, all right. But why? Why do you kiss me now, Nagoma? Goodbye. Goodbye. And so, on Orion's boat, Andrew Harbin made his escape. All that night, he labored hard to keep from wrecking on the innumerable reefs that seemed to protect every island he passed. And he had no time to think about Nagoma and why she had rejected him with their first kiss and their last. 
but with the coming of the sun next morning, he found out. Yes. And in the months that followed, as he sailed here and there over the sea, trying to find his way back to civilization, he had time to ponder on the unbelievable cunning of even the most innocent of women. Andrew Harbin. Back at last. I thought you were dead. I very nearly died, Dutchman. Aha. You bring your head at least. And the imperial bird of paradise, did you find the island? Almost. I almost found it, Dutchman. Almost? I had the island right here in my belt. Longitude and latitude. And a woman embraced me. Embraced me and robbed it back. What are you saying, Harbin? The ship's log. It was as good as a map. But I'd never find the island again now if I had 50 years to look for it. Yeah, the sun is bad for white men. It makes fairy tales in the head. Yes. This time, Dutchman, I'm afraid you're right. Under the direction of Norman MacDonald, Escape has brought you The Bird of Paradise by John Russell, specially adapted for radio by John Meston, starring John Daner as Andrew Harbin. Featured in the cast were Lawrence Dobkin, Gene Bates, and Ben Wright. Edgar Berrier was the narrator. Your announcer, George Walsh. The special music for Escape is composed and conducted by Leith Stevens. Well, it's 30 minutes in. I always take a break at 30 minutes in. I don't know exactly why. It's not like I got anything to sell you or anything. But, well, here it is. And just be patient. It's almost over. Really? I promise. Any second now. Up next, we have an intersanctum mystery. This is the one where Raymond comes out. I know, I know. But he does. I mean, listen, right up front, he tells you that he's a gay ghoul. I guess we now know what that creaking door was at the beginning of each of these. It was Raymond coming out of the closet. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I mean, I don't care if Raymond was gay or not. He still manages to provide a merry tune in this episode, Song of the Slasher, from April the 24th of 1945. Lipton Tea and Lipton Soup presents Inner Sanctum Mysteries. friends of the Inner Sanctum. This is your host, Raymond, the gay ghoul. Friends, would you like to uh, fly through the air with a great speed? 
Do you think you'd enjoy being invisible? Huh? <laughs> oh, it's easy. All you have to do is become a ghost. And to become a ghost, all you have to do is accentuate the ectoplasm and eliminate the protoplasm. Man, if that doesn't work, we'll introduce you to one of the characters on our show. He'll take care of you. The story is called Song of the Slasher. It's an original radio play by Milton Lewis and stars Arnold Moss in the role of Detective Dan Miller. Are you uh, ready? Then get it close and listen. If you find you're getting too many chills and just sit in the fire. Huh? <laughs> a thick, murky fog hangs like a damp veil over the waterfront. Streets are deserted. The buildings loom like tombstones in a cemetery. No living soul can be seen. Because people with sense stay behind locked doors, the slasher has murdered and mutilated his fifth victim in eight days. In a drab, lonely little room, a young woman suddenly looks up when she hears a door close. Well? Well, what's the matter? Can't you speak? Hey, you, get away from me. Get back up. That knife. What are you doing with that knife? You're that flasher. Help! Help me, someone! That's the flasher! Help! Hello? Who is that, Waters? Oh, it, it, it's the slasher. What are you talking about? He's here. Twelve doctors. He's upstairs. Mr. Nancy I can hear him screaming now. He's with her. I go upward. I, I'm, I'm an old man. It's the slasher. He's killing her. Hello? Sergeant Miller? Speaking. This is Captain Quinn, headquarters. Here's the chance you've been waiting for. The smash is at 12 Dock Street, right around the corner from you. On my way, Captain. Bye. And that's how it started. The detective was asked to do some queer things in the line of duty. I didn't mind moving down to the dump at the waterfront with my wife, if it would help catch the slasher. So when I got the call, I rushed out of my joint and beat it down to 12 Dock Street. Oh. Oh, where is he? Where'd he go? Hey. Hey. Listen, I... I... Don't do that. I'll get you a doctor. I... Uh... And listen to me, sister. I don't know her name is. Are they going to send an ambulance? Yeah, yeah, but it won't do her no good. You were too late. Just see the guy who did it. I saw nobody. It can't be far. He was here a minute ago. I heard someone go out the back way. When? A minute ago. Listen. It's coming from that alley down there. Fog's so thick you can't see two feet out of you. The back way goes into the alley. Well, then it's him. The slasher. Get down to the alley, the radio cars, and the men from the precinct were coming. We went through that neighborhood with a sieve. But we couldn't find the guy who whistled that queer tune. Is that you, Danny? Yeah. Oh. 
What happened? Well, you shouldn't have got out of bed, baby. I was worried. He got away. Did he kill another? Yeah, yeah, another dame. It wasn't so foggy I could have seen him. That's how close it was. He close? No, nothing to speak of. Hey, look, look, Peggy, don't you worry about this. You go back and get some sleep. I'm frightened, Danny. That man is somewhere in this neighborhood and us living here. I shouldn't have brought you down here. We're going back to our old place tomorrow. No, I'm not. I don't want you here alone. I want to stay with Shut you. up. Danny. Listen. You hear that, don't you? There ain't something I'm hearing in my head is... Danny, what are you... Answer me, answer me. I want to make sure I ain't hearing... Well, of course I hear it. It's someone whispering, but why are you acting like this? He, the... The slash or whistles that too. Are you sure? Yeah, yeah, I heard him tonight. Oh, the killer. The slasher must be somewhere around here. You going out, baby. The whistling was somewhere in the building. I listened. Where was it coming from? It was gone. I looked at my watch. 4.30 in the morning. I walked down the stairs, listened to the whistle. I, I walked on my toes, listened at the other flats. I didn't hear a thing. I went down into the cellar. There was someone there, all right. Oh, who's there? It was Sykes, the janitor. I came closer. Oh, oh it's you, Mr. Miller. Yeah, yeah, Mr. Sykes. Hey, what's the matter? You're, you're shaking like you got a fever. You, you frightened me. Why? I thought you were the slasher. Yeah? He's around here, you know. He might be hiding in these shadows. He might be anywhere. Everybody's afraid of him. Everybody. Yeah, yeah, so I hear. Uh, what time did you come down here? 4.30, like I do every morning. Why? See any stranger in the building? No, I didn't see anyone. Who's in the flat below us? Mr. Trevelyan. Reginald Trevelyan. Funny name. He's a funny fella. Never sleeps at night. Wanders around the building whistling to himself. Whistling to himself? Yeah. He writes music or something. He got a piano in his place today. He talks crazy sometimes. Think he's up there now? Yeah, he never sleeps. Here. Twenty dollars? Yeah, yeah, it's for you. Why are you giving this to me? I want you to tell me when Mr. Trevelyan leaves his apartment. Do you get it? Yeah, but but why? I ain't paying you 20 bucks to ask questions. Who's there? Miller. Mr. Miller. Yes? What is it, Mr. Miller? My wife and I live upstairs. I know it's kind of late, but uh, can I come in here for a minute? Of course. Hope I'm not disturbing you. Oh, it's quite all right. You the people who moved in a few days ago? That's right. Glad to know you. My name is Reginald Trevelyan. Dan Miller's mine. You been up all night? Yes. 
Why do you ask? Uh, because maybe you can help me. Someone tried to break into our place at about 4.30 this morning. Really? Mr. Miller, you think your wife would be very annoyed if I play the piano now? No. No, I don't think so. She, uh, she likes music. Does she? She seemed like a charming girl. I noticed her when you first moved in. You're very lucky to have such an attractive wife. You, uh, you whistle yourself like that very often? Yes. Especially when I'm working on a new composition. Wait a moment. It says in the papers about the slasher that he has the whole neighborhood trembling in terror. Yes. Lovely. Trembling for their miserable little lives. Worried about their dirty little souls. Shivering in fear in their ugly little rat holes. I knew who the slasher was. I'd embrace him and give him every penny I had. Why? Because I hate them. Because they laugh at me. Headquarters told them to check on Trevelyan. Oh, he was a queer one, all right. So queer, I didn't tell Laura about him. I didn't want to scare her. Couldn't arrest him. I didn't have anything on him yet. I lay down to rest. Maybe I heard it in my dream. Maybe not. I heard that whistling again. That same tune. I think that's what woke me. I looked around. Laura. She was gone. And the door was open. I rushed out. The hall was filled with thick fog. In the yellow light, I saw a crumpled heap on the floor. I recognized... Laura's bathroom. Well, we've kept the blood from flowing long enough. On with the murders. Listen as we hear Arnold Moss as Dan Miller finish that story. Laura 
was alive in a dead faint. I scooped her up in my arms and rushed her back to our flat. She opened her eyes a few minutes later. Danny. You're okay, baby. He was going to kill me. Yeah, yeah. Drink some of this. Thanks. Oh, Danny, it was awful. What happened? Well, you were asleep. I, I went out to get the milk, and I heard someone whistling. Do you remember what? That same queer melody we heard before, the one the slasher whistled. So I thought I'd help you. Help me? I thought I'd see him. I walked quietly down the hall, and there was no one there. Then I turned the corner. Yeah? I saw the knife gleam. Someone was hiding in the shadows. He grabbed my neck, and I screamed. I screamed, Danny. I screamed so I thought I'd burst my throat, and then it all went flat. Did you see him? No, but I felt his hands on my throat. They were strong hands, fingers like steel, and I... You'll be all right. When you think that he's right here, maybe living in this building. Well, he won't be here long. I'm calling headquarters. Do you know who he is? I got a good idea. Now, just let me get on that phone and... Oh, Danny, maybe that's him. Now, take it easy, kid. Who's there? Sykes. It's just a janitor, baby. Oh. What do you want? He went out. Provided? Yeah. Okay. Laura, get dressed. I want to get you out of here before the trouble starts. I'll be gone for a few minutes. Where are you going? With Mr. Sykes. You got a key, Sykes? Yeah, but I'll have to go along with you. You you can't take anything. You know what this badge means? You a detective? Yeah, yeah. Now, let's go. What are you doing here? Looking for the slasher? I'll write your book about it, pal. Here's his choice. Open the door. All right. But you'll have to hurry. He may come back any minute. All I want is enough evidence. I'll take care of him when we get it. The door's open. Come on in. It was eight in the morning. But it could have been eight at night. The fog was so thick. I knew this was it. I couldn't take any chances. I had to get all the evidence on it before I nabbed him. And I had to get it without him being wise. What are you looking for? Knives. We know he's got at least three. I don't see none. Neither do I. Maybe it's a bum steer. I could be wrong. Hey, 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 what's this? Music. He's always writing it. I used to be a choir boy once. They taught me how to read them notes. I wonder if I still can. Why? Uh, because I think this may be a tune I'm looking for. Let me see. That, that song. Did you ever hear it before? Yeah. I bet you did. He's always whistling it. I heard it myself when he killed the last one. You've got to find those knives. Just better hurry. I think he just went out to get some breakfast. I looked everywhere. Couldn't find the knives. I couldn't bring a guy in just because I heard a song. I found a bunch of keys. They were trunk keys. But there was no trunk. I think I hear him coming. Never mind what you think. Where does he keep his trunk? In the storeroom in the cellar. He's always going down there for things. Hold it, hold it. That's him. room behind this upright piano for both of us. What, the piece to shut up? Shut up. Get behind here and hurry. <laughs> he sat down at 
queer arrangement of the same tune that led me to it. I reach for my gun just in case. Suddenly, I felt the sweat ooze out of me. It was sweat that felt like ice. I didn't have my gun. I remember I took it off when I laid down to rest. Come on, Sykes. I told you to hurry before. I hear him going down those stairs. It's, it's safe to go now. All right, Sykes. We're going to open that trunk in the store. Here's his trunk, Mr. Miller. This key should open it. Are they the knives? Yeah. The knives. Look at them, look at them. Covered with blood. Chief. Sykes, go to the police precinct. Tell them Miller sent you. Tell them to come over here with as many men as they can spare. All right, all right. I took the knives and put them under my coat. Went up to my room. I'm leaving. I'll be home soon. I could hear Laura talking on the phone with someone. I opened the door. Oh, of course I... Oh, I better hang up now. Danny just came in. Goodbye, darling. Who are you talking to? Mother, I'm... I'm ready to go. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's no rush. Mr. Danny. It's that man at the piano. It sounds like the thrasher's song. Yeah. What have you got there? My gun. Come on, baby. We're gone. That man playing the piano. Are you sure he's a slasher? Yeah. Positive. Danny, you're hurting my arm. Oh, sorry. I'm nervous. That's his place. Come on in with me. Come in with me? Yeah. I figured out a way to trap him. Danny, Don't be scared, baby. You'll be okay. Oh. It's you. Yeah, yeah, Mr. Trevelyan. I... I'd like to meet my wife. I'm delighted. How do you do? Would you like to hear something? It's a composition I've just completed. I've had a great deal of trouble with it. But I think I've got it right now. Are you? I've got it. Yeah, you got it coming to your slasher. Are you? What are you going to do with that knife? It's one of his knives. Stand still, Laura. Danny, don't me. Wait a minute. Danny, what's the matter with you? coming to you, too. Why? I know who you were talking about on that phone. It wasn't your old lady. What? It was Jerry Boyd, that guy who lives next door, wasn't it? Answer me, wasn't it? No, no. Lie to me. So this is why you made me come down here with you. You planned this all along. That's right, baby. 
And that's why I had you insured for 40 grand. Oh. You made one bad mistake. You married a smart cookie. You're going to kill me and blame it on the slasher. Yeah. No! Help me, someone! Help me! Daddy! Don't! clean of fingerprints. And then I, I smeared Trevelyan's hand over the handle. I knew what to do. Made it look good. Made it look perfect. There's a way to get away with murder. And I found it. I thought. Along with the report, Norm. Well, Captain Quinney... After I sent Sykes to the precinct, I went upstairs for my gun. My wife wasn't there, and I got the gun, and I heard a scream. I rushed to his place. I opened the door. I, I saw Laura. The second I thought I'd pass out. Yeah? He, he grabbed a knife and come at me, and I shot him and killed him. <gasps> oh, Laura. She was insured for $40,000, wasn't she? Yeah. 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 What difference does that make now? A lot of difference, Miller. I want you to meet someone. Come in, Sykes. Yes, Captain. Did you hear Detective Miller's report clearly? Yes, sir. Was he telling the truth? No. He lied. What are you talking about? I didn't go to the police when you told me. I hid in the cellar. I saw you go upstairs. I saw you get your wife and go to Trevelyan's place. I listened at the door. I heard you shoot the villain and then murder your wife. Captain, the man's insane. Yes, Miller. A homicidal maniac. I'll take away his coat. You see? He's handcuffed. I don't get it. He's the slasher. He? It's impossible. I told you about that melody. Why... It's still on Trevelyan's piano. Trevelyan copying down that melody after he heard Sykes whistle it. Yeah. I whistled the whole thing for him. But the knives I found in Trevelyan's trunk. I put them there. I knew who you were. Sykes was trying to frame Trevelyan. He's made a complete confession, Miller. But how did you find out? Well, you asked us to check on Trevelyan. We discovered that he's quite a famous, if eccentric composer. I checked up on the other people in the building at the same time. I found out that Sykes escaped from the State Institute for the Insane two years ago. He's confessed. Yeah. I'm the slasher. Why should Trevelyan become famous for what I've done? You had a perfect crime all figured out, Miller. But you made one little mistake. You decided the wrong person was the slasher. Even a copper can't pull a perfect one, Miller. <laughs> Telling you all this because in ten minutes I won't be able to tell nobody anything. Ever since I made my report, I've been been hearing that song in my head, like like somebody whistling it. Soon I I, I won't hear that either. <laughs> it's a nice tune, kind of sad. 
tonight's story is never quarrel with your wife. Avoid strife. If that doesn't work, get a carving knife. <laughs> oh, by the way, this month's Inner Sanctum Mystery novel is The Lucky Stiff by Craig Rice. And now I guess it's really time to close that squeaking door until next week, the same time, when Lipton Tea and Lipton Soup bring you another Inner Sanctum Mystery directed by Hyman Brown. So until then... <sighs> Good night. Another five minute mystery. on the east side, a dying patient gives a last expiring gasp. <clears throat> He's gone. Slipped through my fingers like water running through a sieve. It's not your fault, Dr. Grant. You've done everything you could. The hospital certainly not failed. Nurse, you... this man should never have died. Something's wrong. I don't know what it is, but I'm sure that James Towner here did not die of the ailment he came to this hospital for. Nurse, I'm going to get permission to perform an autopsy. <laughs> Your hunch was right, Dr. Grant. What is it? Tell me, Jones. When we tested Towner's blood in the lab, a foreign substance showed up immediately. I didn't recognize it, but one of my assistants seemed to think he knew what it was. So I let him make tests. A rare poison used only by the South American Indians was introduced into the bloodstream of the victim. It killed him, all right. But that's impossible, Dr. Grant. Jones, did your man say whether this poison could have been taken through food or... I thought of that, too. He swears it is the only effective way when it is taken directly into the bloodstream. And is there any antidote? Uh, not known. My man says the Indians obtain a certain immunity by injecting themselves with small amounts over a long period of time. How could that poison have gotten into Towner's bloodstream? Doctor, I was with the patient every minute he was here. I could swear he had nothing intravenous during the whole time except the transfusions. Two of them which you ordered yourself. The transfusions? Who was the donor? Uh, Mr. Harkness, a friend of Towner's, happened to be visiting him. The friend immediately offered him blood. Towner was grateful and accepted. Harkness said something about his being the least he could do. We tested his blood and found it the right type, so we did the transfusion. I think we ought to investigate Harkness. But, Dr. Grant, I'm positive that Mr. Harkness did not even touch Mr. Towner during the whole time of his illness. If what I'm thinking is true... Harkness had something to do with the death of James Towner just the same. Well, we were certainly lucky, Doctor. There's no question about it. Harkness is your man. I knew it. I knew it. I've had Harkness investigated by the police. He's mentioned in Towner's will. Gets the whole estate. The police have searched his apartment and found just what I expected. I feel my medical judgment has been vindicated, Jonesy. You're right, Doctor. We're going to have this man, Harkness, arrested for the murder of James Towner. 
know what the doctor and the laboratory technician discovered which indicated to them that Harkness murdered his friend Towner? The doctor will tell you in a moment. But first... We got a break. But we'll be back real soon with some science fiction. I hope you like science fiction. I sure do. And now, back to our story. Well, Doctor, what have you found? The thing that indicated to me the fact that Harkness had a hand in the murder of James Towner was something Jones said when he spoke of the poison and the way the South American Indians gained immunity from it. I deduced that probably, against the chance that his so-called friend would need a transfusion, Harkness had so immunized himself over a period of time. If he had, the poison would still be in his blood in some quantity, small perhaps, but enough to react unfavorably on Towner in his condition. A police search verified my hunch. And now, Harkness is being tried for one of the most unusual murders that has ever come to my attention. For our trip into science fiction on this episode, I want to direct your attention to Mindwebs. This is a program of science fiction stories that ran on WHA radio in, in Madison, Wisconsin from 1976 to 1984. This particular episode on December the 8th of 1978, Mindwebs was almost entirely the work of Michael Hansen. He selected the material, he wrote the background music, and most of the times he was the single voice presenting the material. Michael Hansen is still around, by the way. He's a jazz musician who is working in the environs of Madison, Wisconsin. For today's episode, Mr. Hansen selected a short story by Edmund Hamilton who was one of the very best science fiction pulp writers pretty much ever. One of my favorite. I think I probably first read one of Hamilton's story in about 1960 when I read his book The Haunted Stars, and over the years I've reread it two or three times. It's extremely unusual for me to read anything more than once. Time is a little short here, so I'm not going to be able to take up a lot of time extolling the virtues of Edmund Hamilton. I'll just say, if you like this, go to the web, go to nighttransmissions.com, look at segment three, because it turns out that a lot of Edmund Hamilton's works are in the public domain, and I'm able there to provide links to quite a bit of free stuff. Definitely worth checking out. Welcome to a half hour of Mind Webs. Short stories from the worlds of speculative fiction.
Michael Hansen. The Mind Web story tonight comes from Weird Tales magazine of February 1934. This is Edmund Hamilton's The Man Who Returned. John Woodford, in his first moments of returning consciousness, was not aware that he was lying in his coffin. He had only a dull knowledge that he lay in utter darkness and that there was a close, heavy quality in the air he breathed. He felt very weak and had only a dim curiosity as to where he was and how he had come there. He knew that he was not lying in his bedroom at home, for the darkness there was never so complete as this. Home? That memory brought others to John Woodford's dulled brain. And he recalled his wife now and his son. He remembered, too, that he had been ill at home very ill, and that was all that he could remember. What was this place to which he had been brought? Why was the darkness so complete and the silence so unbroken? And why was there no one near him? He was a sick man, and they should have given him better care than this. He lay with a dull irritation at this treatment growing in his mind. Then he became aware that breathing was beginning to hurt his lungs, that the air seemed warm and foul. Why did not someone open a window? His irritation grew to such a point that it spurred his muscles into action. He put out his right hand to reach for a bell or a light button. His hand moved slowly only a few inches to the side and then was stopped by an unyielding barrier. His fingers feebly examined it. It seemed a solid wall of wood or metal faced with smooth satin. It extended all along his right side. And when he weakly moved his other arm, he found a similar wall on that side, too. His irritation gave way to mystification. Why in the world had they put him, a sick man, into this narrow place? Why his shoulders rubbed against the sides on either side? Why? He would soon know the reason for it, he told himself. He raised up to give utterance to a call that would bring those in attendance on him. To his utter amazement, his head bumped against a similar silk-lined wall directly above his face. He raised his arms in the darkness and discovered with growing astonishment that this wall or ceiling extended above him from head to foot like those on either side. He lay upon a similar silk-padded surface. Why, in the name of all that was holy, had they put him into a silk-lined box like this? Woodford's brain was puzzling this when a minor irritation made itself felt. His collar was hurting him. It was a high, stiff collar that was pressing into the flesh of his neck. But this again was a mystery, that he should be wearing a stiff collar. Why had they dressed a sick man in formal clothes and put him into this box? Suddenly, John Woodford shrieked, and the echoes of his scream reverberated around his ears like hideous, demonic laughter. He suddenly knew the answer to it all. He was not a sick man anymore at all. He was a dead man. Or at least they had thought him dead and had put him into this coffin and had closed it. He was buried alive. The fears of his lifetime had come true. His secret dark forebodings were hideously realized. From earliest childhood he had feared this very horror, for he had known himself subject to cataleptic sleeps hardly to be distinguished from death. He had had nightmares of premature burial. He had never told his wife or son of his fears, but they had persisted. They had inspired him to exact a promise that he would not be embalmed when buried and would be interred in his private vault instead of in the earth. He had thought that in case he were not really dead, these provisions might save his life. 
But now he realized that they only laid him open to the horrible fate he had dreaded. He knew with terrible certainty that he lay now in his coffin in the stone vault in the quiet cemetery. His screams could not be heard outside the vault, probably not even outside the coffin. John Woodford went temporarily mad. He screamed with fear-choked throat, and as he shrieked, he clawed with hands and feet at the unyielding satin-covered surfaces around and above him. He beat upward as best he could upon the coffin's lid with his clenched fists, but the heavy fastenings held firm. He yelled until his throat was too swollen to give utterance to further sound. He clawed at the top until he broke his nails against the metal behind the silk padding. He raised his head and beat against the top with it until he fell back half-stunned. He lay exhausted for moments, unable to make further efforts. In his brain marched a hideous pageant of horrors. The air seemed much closer and hotter now, seemed to burn his lungs with each breath he inhaled. With sudden return of his frenzy, he shrieked and shrieked again. This would not do. He was in a horrible situation, but he must do the best he could not to give way to the horror. He had not many minutes left, and he must use them in the most rational way possible to try to escape this terrible prison. With this resolution, a little calm came to him, and he began to test his powers of movement. He clenched his fists again and hammered upward. This did no good. His arms were jammed so close against his body by the coffin's narrowness that he could not strike a strong blow, nor had he any leverage to push strongly upward. What about his feet? Feverishly, he tried them, but found his kicks upward even less powerful. He thought of hunching up on his knees and thus bursting up the lid, but found that he could not raise his knees high enough, and that when he pressed upward with them against the lid, his feet simply slid away in the smooth silk of the coffin's bottom. Now the breaths he drew seared his lungs and nostrils, and his brain seemed on fire. He knew his strength was waning, and that before long he would lose consciousness. He must do whatever he could swiftly. He felt the soft silk about him, and the dreadful irony of it came home to him. He had been placed so lovingly in this death trap. He tried to turn on his side, for he thought now that he might use his shoulders to heave up against the lid. But turning was not easy in the cramped coffin and had to be accomplished by a myriad little hitching movements, an infinitely slow and painful process. John Woodford hitched and squirmed desperately until he lay on his left side. He found then that his right shoulder touched the lid above. He braced his left shoulder on the coffin's bottom and heaved upward with all his strength. There was no result. The lid seemed as immovable as ever. He heaved again, despair fast filling his heart. He knew that very soon he would give way and shriek and claw. There was already a ringing in his ears. He had not many minutes left, and with the utter frenzy of despair, he heaved upward again with his shoulder. This time there was a grating sound of something giving above. The sound was like the wild peal of thousands of bells of hope to John Woodford's ears. He heaved quickly again and again at the lid. Paying no attention to the bruising of his shoulder, he pressed upward with every ounce of his strength. There was another grating sound, then a snap of metal and fastenings breaking. And as he shoved upward with convulsive effort, the heavy metal lid swung up and over and struck the stone wall with a deep clang. A flood of cold air struck him. He struggled up over the coffin's side, dropped a few feet to a stone floor, and lay in a huddled mass. It was many minutes before he had mastered himself and summoned enough strength to stand. 
He stood inside a little vault that held no coffin but his own. Its interior was in darkness, save for a dim shaft of starlight that came through a tiny window high up in one wall. John Woodford stumbled to the vault's heavy iron doors and fumbled at their lock. He had an uncontrollable horror of this place that had almost been the scene of his perishing. He worked frantically at the lock. He managed to turn its tumbler and shoot its bar, and then the heavy iron doors swung open. John Woodford stepped eagerly out into the night. He stopped on the vault's threshold, closing the doors behind him, and then looking forth with inexpressible emotions. The cemetery lay in the starlight before him as a dim, ghostly city of looming monuments and vaults. Little sheets of ice glinted here and there in the dim light, and the air was biting and it's cold. Outside the cemetery's low wall blinked the lights of the surrounding city. Woodford started eagerly across the cemetery, unheeding of the cold. Somewhere across the lights of the city was his home, his wife, and somewhere his son, thinking him dead, mourning him. How glad they would be when he came back to them, alive. His heart expanded as he pictured their amazement and their joy at his return. He came to the low stone wall of the cemetery and clambered quickly over it. It was apparently well after midnight, for the cars and pedestrians in sight in the suburban section were few. Woodford hurried along the street. He passed people who looked at him in surprise, and only after some time did he realize the oddness of his appearance. A middle-aged man clad in a formal suit and locking hat and overcoat was an odd person to meet on a suburban street on a winter midnight. But he paid small attention to their stares. He didn't turn up the collar of his frock coat to keep out the cold, but he hardly felt the frigid air and the emotions that filled him. He wanted to get home, to get back to Helen, to witness her stupefaction and dawning joy when she saw him returned from the dead, living. As he reached the section in which his home was located, he glanced in the store window in passing and saw on the tear sheet calendar a big black date that made him gasp. It was a date... Ten days later than the one he last remembered, he had been buried in the vault for more than a week. More than a week in that coffin, it seemed incredible, terrible. But that did not matter now, he told himself. It would only make the joy of his wife and son the greater when they found he was alive. To Woodford himself, it seemed as though he were returning from a journey rather than from the dead. As he hastened along the tree-bordered street on which his home was located, he almost laughed aloud as he thought of how amazed some of his friends would be when they met him. They would think him a ghost or a walking corpse, would perhaps shrink in terror from him at first, but that thought brought another. He must not walk in on Helen too abruptly. The husband she had buried ten days ago must not appear too suddenly or the shock might easily kill her. He must contrive somehow to soften the shock of his appearance. He must make sure he did not startle her too much. With this resolve in mind, when he reached the big house set well back from the street, Woodford turned aside through the grounds instead of approaching the front entrance. He saw windows lighted in the library of the house, and he went toward them. He would see who was there, would try to break the news of his return gently to Helen. He climbed silently under the terrace outside the library windows and approached the tall casements. He peered in. Through the silky curtains, he could clearly see the room's soft-lit interior cozy with the shelves of his books and with the lamps and fireplace. Helen, his wife, sat on a sofa with her back partly toward the window. Beside her sat a man that Woodford recognized as one of their closest friends, Curtis Dawes. Woodford heard Dawes speaking. 
It was a long time, Helen, those years that I waited. She laid her hand tenderly on his. I know, and you never said a word. I respected so your loyalty to John. John was a good husband, Kurt. He really loved me, and I never let him guess that I didn't love him, that it was you, his friend, I loved. But when he died, I couldn't feel grief. I felt regret for his sake, of course, but underneath it was a consciousness that at last, at last you and I were free to love each other. Darling, you don't regret that I talked you into marrying me right away? You don't care that people may be talking? I don't care for anything but you. John was dead. Young Jack has his own home and wife. There was no reason in the world why we should not marry. I'm glad that we did. In the darkness outside the window, a stunned, dazed John Woodford saw her lift an illumined face toward the man's. I'm proud to be your wife at last, dear, no matter what anyone may say about us. Woodford drew slowly back from the window. He paused in the darkness under the trees, his mind shaken, torn. So this was his homecoming from the tomb. This was the joy he had anticipated in Helen when he returned. He had always sensed that Helen's feeling for him was not as strong as his for her, but that she had loved Dawes he had never dreamed. Yet now he remembered Dawes's frequent visits, the odd silences between him and Helen. He remembered a thousand trifles that spoke of the love which those two had cherished. What was he, John Woodford, to do? Walk in upon them and tell them that they had been premature in counting him dead? That he had come back to claim his position in life and his wife again? He couldn't do it. He couldn't now reappear to her and blast her newfound happiness and blacken her name. What was he to do? He couldn't let Helen know now that he was alive, couldn't return to the home that had been his, yet he must go somewhere. Where? With a sudden leap of the heart, he thought of Jack, his son. He could at least go to Jack, let his son know that he was living. Jack, at least, would be overjoyed to see him and would keep the fact of his return secret from his mother. Woodford reached the street and started across the blocks towards the cottage of his son. When he got there, he felt relief as he saw the lights from the lower windows. He had feared that no one would be up. He peered in as he had done at his own home. Jack was sitting at a little desk and his young wife was perched on the arm of a chair and listening as Jack explained something to her from a sheet of writing on the desk. Uh, you see, Dorothy, uh, we can just make it by adding our savings to Dad's insurance money. Oh, Jack, and it's what you've wanted so long, a little business of your own. Yeah, it won't be very big to start with, but I'll make it grow all right. This is the chance I've been hoping for. Of course, it's too bad about Dad's going like that, but seeing that he did die, the insurance money solves our problems of getting the business started. John Woodford drew slowly back from the window. He had already decided that he must remain dead to his wife and therefore to the world. He might as well remain so to his son also. It was for the best. John Woodford melted away from the cottage into the darkness. When he reached the street, he stood in indecision. A freezing rain had begun to blow, and he felt very cold. He tried to think what he must do. Neither Helen nor Jack must know that he was living. That meant that no one in the city must know. He must get out of town to some other place, take up life under some other name. But he'd need money to do that. Where was he to get money and help? Howard Norris. The name came to Woodford's lips. Norse had been his employer, head of the firm where Woodford had held a position for many years. He knew where Norse's residence was, several miles out in the country. He couldn't walk that far. He would have to telephone Norse. 
Woodford walked back towards the city's central section, head bent against the piercing cold wind. He succeeded in finding an all-night lunchroom. The proprietor allowed him to use the telephone. Howard Norse's sleepy voice soon came over the wire. Mr. Norse, this is Woodford. John Woodford. Yeah, crazy. Woodford's been dead and buried for a couple of weeks. No, I tell you, it's John Woodford. I'm not dead at all. I'm as living as you are. If you'll, if you'll come into town, you'll see for yourself. I'm not likely to drive to town at 2 in the morning to look at a maniac. Whatever your game is, you're wasting your time. Now listen, whoever you are. I was bothered long enough with John Woodford when he was living. He was so inefficient, we would have kicked him out long ago if we hadn't been sorry for him. But now he's dead. You needn't think you can bother me in his name. Good night. And the receiver clicked in Woodford's unbelieving ear. He stared at the instrument. So that was what they had really thought of him at the firm. There, where he'd always thought himself was one of the most highly valued employees. But there must be someone upon whom he could call for help. Someone he could convince that John Woodford was still living. Someone who would be glad to think he might be living. There was no one from whom he could get help, he saw. His paramount necessity now was to get out of the city, and to do that he must rely on himself. The icy blasts of the snow-laden wind penetrated through his thin coat. His hands were shaking with the cold, and he felt his body quivering, his teeth chattering. If he could only get out of the blast of the icy wind, his eyes sought desperately along the street for a hallway where he might shelter himself. He found a deep doorway and crouched down inside it out of the wind and driving snow. But hardly had he done so when a heavy step paused in front of him and a nightstick wrapped his feet smartly. An authoritative voice ordered him to get up and go home. Woodford did not try to explain to the policeman that he was not a drunken citizen fallen by the way. He got wearily to his feet and moved on along the street, unable to see more than a few feet ahead for the world of snow. The snow on which he was walking penetrated the thin shoes he wore, and his feet were soon even colder than the rest of his body. He walked with slow, dragging steps, head bent against the storm of white. He was dully aware that the dark shops beside him had given way to a low stone wall, with a sudden start, he recognized it as the wall of the cemetery, which he had left but hours before the cemetery from a vault in which he had escaped. The vault! Why hadn't he thought of it before, he asked himself. The vault would be a shelter from the freezing wind and snow. He could stay there for the night without anyone objecting. He paused, feeling for a moment a little renewal of his former terrors. Did he dare go back into that place from which he had struggled to escape? Then an extra-strong blast of icy air struck him and decided him the vault would be shelter, and that was what his frozen body craved more than anything else. Stiffly, he climbed over the low stone wall and made his way through the cemetery's widened monuments and vaults towards the one from which he had escaped. The driving snow covered his tracks almost as he made them as he trudged toward the vault. He reached it and tried its iron doors anxiously. Suppose he had locked them when he left. But to his relief, they swung open, and he entered and shut them. It was dark inside, but he was out of the wind and snow now, and his numbed body felt a little relief. Whitford sat down in the corner of the vault. It was a shelter for the night, at least. It seemed rather ironic that he had had to come back here for shelter, but it was something to be thankful for that he had even this. In the morning, when the storm was over, he could leave without anyone seeing and get out of the city. He sat listening to the wind and snow shriek outside. 
The stone floor of the vault was very cold. So cold that he felt his limbs stiffening and cramping, and finally he stood up unsteadily and paced to and fro in the vault, chafing his arms and hands. If he had only a blanket or even a heavy coat to lie upon, he'd freeze there upon the stone floor. Then, as he turned in his pace and he bumped into the coffin on the shelf, and a new idea was born in his mind. The coffin, why the interior of it was lined with silk and satin padding, it would be warm in the coffin. He could sleep in it far better than on the cold stone floor. But did he dare to re-enter it? Again, John Woodford felt faintly the former terrors he had experienced when he had awakened in the coffin. But they meant nothing, he told himself, nothing. He would not be fastened in this time, and his frozen flesh yearned for the warmth of the coffin's lining. So slowly, carefully, he climbed up and lowered himself into the coffin and stretched out. The silk and padding he sank into at a grateful warmth. He lowered his head upon the soft pillow with a sigh of relief. Ah, this was much better. He experienced an almost luxurious comfort now. But after he had lain for a little while, he felt that the top of his body was still cold. But a cold air came into the open coffin's top. That cold air entering kept him from being completely warm. If the lid above him were just closed to keep out the cold air, he reached up and got the edge of the heavy metal lid and then let it down upon himself. He was completely in the dark now, inside the closed coffin. But he was warm, too, for the lid kept out the cold air, and he was getting warmer all the time as his body warmed up the interior. Yes, it was far more comfortable with the lid closed, and even warmth now pervaded his whole being, and the air inside the coffin was getting warmer and thicker. He felt a little drowsy now as he breathed that warm air, felt luxuriously sleepy as he lay on the soft silk. It was getting a little harder to breathe somehow as the air became thicker. He ought really to raise the coffin lid and let in some fresh air. But it was so warm now, and the air outside was so cold, and he was more and more sleepy. Something dim and receding in his fading consciousness told him that he was on the way to suffocation. But what if he was, was his sleepy thought. He was better off in here than back in the world outside. He had been a fool ever to fight so hard before to get out of this warm, comfortable coffin, to get back to that outside world. No, it was better like this. The darkness and the warmth and the sleep that advanced. Nobody would ever know that he had awakened at all, that he had been away from here at all. Everything would be just as before, just as before. And with that comforting assurance, John Woodford was swept farther and farther down the dark stream of unconsciousness from which, this time, there would be no returning. You have heard the Man Who Returned, a story by Edmund Hamilton, which appeared in the February 1934 edition of Weird Tales 
Magazine. This is Michael Hansen. Technical production for this broadcast by Rich Grody. Mindwebs is produced at WHA Radio in Madison, a service of University of Wisconsin Extension. This is strange as it seems. It's kind of a rip-off of Believe It or Not. The sound quality isn't great, but I do think it's listenable. And although I can't pin down the date exactly, it is somewhere between 1935 and 1939. The makers of X-Lax present Strange As It Seems. Tonight, X-Lax, the original chocolate laxative, brings you another of its fascinating series of strange facts, strange happenings, strange people. The author who ate his book. You are now in the year 1644, and the following scene takes place in the great council hall of His Majesty King Christian IV of Denmark.
Sovereign carries his age well, but he's in a bad mood this morning. There's trouble in store for someone. Your Majesty. Your Majesty. Where is that prisoner? The prisoner is here, Your Majesty. Step forward. Are you Theodore Ranging? Yes, Your Majesty. Here is a book which I've been looking over. Are you the author? I am, sir. Are you aware that what you've written here amounts to treason? I meant no disloyalty to my king or my country. I've written what I believe to be true. It's a lie. It's intended to appeal to the emotions of my people, to stir up discontent, revolution. Your Majesty. And above all, when we're in the midst of a vicious invasion by the army of Sweden. Your Majesty, hear me. You, you preach democracy, the rule of the people. They're ignorant and unfit to govern themselves. But the people can govern you. You would put some... Some adventurer on my throne. Fire! Fire! You have committed a crime against the people you pretend to champion. This book is an offense against reason and justice. It's an infamous lie. For this disloyalty, you shall die. Blame me if you will, Your Majesty, but the voice of the people cannot be forever silent. Others will rise to speak where I have stood. <laughs> so, you would die a martyr for the cause of democracy, eh? Very well, then. I shall give you an alternative. Here is your book. Take it. Now, eat it. Or tomorrow your head will fall under the axe of my executioner. It is the following morning. King Christian again sits upon his throne as the pale but undaunted writer is led before him. Are you prepared to receive your sentence? I am, Your Majesty. Executioner, is the axe ready? Exquisitely sharp, Your Gracious Majesty. <sighs> but I claim to receive amnesty, Your Majesty. Yesterday you granted me an alternative. Huh? Oh. Yeah. So I did. Hmm. Uh, do you mean to tell me you managed to digest this fable about democracy? It is easier to digest than Your Majesty assumes. What? You ate the book? I tore it into tiny pieces and ate it in my soup. Yeah, I ate it in this soup. Tore it into tiny pieces. Strange as it seems, Theodore Rankin did eat his book on democracy, and Denmark has remained a monarchy. Incidentally, the king kept his word. The world's largest family. Patriarch is the father and ruler of a family or tribe. Abraham was a patriarch. Noah was, well, Noah's family was almost too large. But in spite of modern tendencies, all the patriarchs are not dead. In a little Austrian town lives Herr Steinberg. Oh, excuse me, is Schein, Herr Scheinberg at home? I am Herr Scheinberg. <coughs> Herr Scheinberg, I am Klaus of the Orphan's Welfare Society of Salzburg. I've come to ask for you 
A donation for the little orphan. For the little ones? Yeah, and the big ones, too. You wanted I should give you money for all those Salzburg children? Oh, not all of them, Herr Salzburg. Uh, just the little ones and the big ones. <laughs> Surely you can afford a few crises, Herr Scheinberg. Uh, perhaps you have children. Perhaps I have children. Yeah, I got 87 children. Oh, you have orphan asylum also. Nine, they are my children, my sons and daughters. You're joking. It is no joke. But, but, but it is impossible, Herr Scheinberg. You think that I cannot count my own children? But 87. I was married twice. The first Frau Scheinberg had four sets of quadruplets, seven sets of triplets, and 16 sets of twins. She had 69. It is wonderful. The second Frau Scheinberg had 18 children. That's a miracle. 87 children I have living. Oh, what a blessing. A blessing. Maybe that's a blessing. In my life I have bought 1,282 pairs of shoes for my children. Today I got to buy keys for Christmas. Keys and marzipan for 300 people. But that's not enough, nicht wahr? Now, now, come see me after New York. Maybe I give you a goose for the orphan. Oh, uh, excuse me, Herr Scheinberg. Uh, Merry Christmas, Herr Scheinberg. Yeah, yeah. Merry Christmas. Strange as it seems, according to an authentic report in the Vienna Medical Journal, Bernard Scheinberg has been the father of 87 children. According to last reports, he was enjoying excellent health, as well as considerable fame as a family man. The lamp that burned 70 years. You are now in a little village on the outskirts of Binghamton, New York. It is late at night. And a stranger ropes his way through the foggy darkness. The last resident of the town seems to have gone to bed. But wait. Yes, there is a light, faintly glimmering through the fog. The stranger quickens his steps. At last, here is someone who may be able to direct him. I walked my way in the park and saw your light burning in the window. Can you tell me where Mr. Fellows is? What, what name did you say? I'm looking for the home of Mr. R.H. Fellows. Oh, I, I thought you said Fellows. Are you sure you don't mean Fellows? No, madam. The name is Fellows. Well, if you wish to come in... Oh, thank you. I will for a minute. Ah, oh, it's very cozy in here. But didn't I hear someone playing the melodeon? I play it sometimes at night. Well, I'm thankful someone keeps the light burning in this village after 10 o'clock. My light is always burning. It has been burning in that window every night for 70 years. Seventy years? 
Yes. May I take the liberty of asking for whom you've been waiting all these years? For him. Uh, did you say you knew someone named Fellows? No, madam. Oh, everyone has forgotten him. Except me. John Fellows was a good man. If he still lives, he will come back to me. You were to marry him? Yes. But my father would not give his consent. He drove John Bellows from our house. Oh, listen. Did you hear someone at the gate? No, it was only the wind rising. It will clear away the fog. Oh, the lamp is the symbol of my undying love. You cannot forget. My memories are all I have. For 70 years, I have not left this house. 70 years. He was my only love. But we shall meet again. I hope so. The weather's clearing now, so I'll be on my way. Thank you for asking me in. Good night, madam. Good night. The whole wide world. More people use it than any other brand. And you'll like it too. You'll like its mildness, gentleness, effectiveness, its delicious chocolate taste. You'll like the fact that it is equally good for young and old, so that you need only one laxative for the entire family. Incidentally, you'll also like the price. A box costs only 10 cents at any drugstore. A man called the New York Times by telephone. He was talking from Long Island, but the message went via the South Pole. Hear the story of this amazing experience on our next Strange As It Seems program. You will also meet the fascinating English woman who tempted fate. What strange destiny was waiting for her? You have just heard Strange As It Seems by John Hicks, directed by Cyril Armbruster. Calvin Coolidge was never governor of a state. Entrance and exit. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Bernard Spiel. Entrance and Exit by Algernon Blackwood. These three, the old physicist, the girl, and the young Anglican parson who was engaged to her, stood by the window of the country house. The blinds were not yet drawn. They could see the dark clump of pines in the field, with crests silhouetted against the pale wintry sky of the February afternoon. Snow, freshly fallen, lay upon lawn and hill. A big moon was already lighting up. "'Yes, that's the wood,' the old man said. "'And it was this very day fifty years ago, February 13th, 
The man disappeared from its shadows, swept in this extraordinary, incredible fashion into invisibility, into some other place. Can you wonder the grove is haunted? A strange impressiveness of manner belied the laugh following the words. Oh, please tell us, the girl whispered. We're all alone now. Curiosity triumphed, yet a vague alarm betrayed itself in the questioning glance she cast for protection at her younger companion, whose fine face, on the other hand, wore an expression that was grave and singularly rapt. He was listening keenly. As though nature, the physicist went on, half to himself, here and there concealed vacuums, gaps, holes in space. His mind was always speculative, more than speculative, some said, through which a man might drop into invisibility, a new direction, in fact, at right angles to the three known ones, higher space, as Bolyai, Gauss, and Hinton might call it, and what you, with your mystical turn, looking toward the young priest, might consider a spiritual change of condition into a region where space and time do not exist and where all dimensions are possible because they are one. But please, the story, the girl begged, not understanding these dark sayings. Although I'm not sure that Arthur ought to hear it, he's much too interested in such queer things as it is. Smiling, yet uneasy, she stood closer to his side, as though her body might protect his soul. Very briefly, then, you shall hear what I remember of this haunting, for I was barely ten years old at the time. It was evening, clear and cold like this, with snow and moonlight, when someone reported to my father that a peculiar sound variously described as crying, singing, wailing, was being heard in the grove. He paid no attention until my sister heard it too, and was frightened. Then he sent a groom to investigate. Though the night was brilliant, the man took a lantern. We watched from this very window till we lost his figure against the trees, and the lantern stopped swinging suddenly, as if he had put it down. It remained motionless, we waited half an hour, and then my father, curiously excited, I remember, went out quickly, and I, utterly terrified, went after him. We followed his tracks, which came to an end beside the lantern, the last step being a stride almost impossible for a man to have made. All around the snow was unbroken by a single mark, but the man himself had vanished. Then we heard him calling for help, above, behind beyond us, from all directions at once, yet from none, came the sound of his voice. But though we called back, he made no answer, and gradually his cries grew fainter and fainter, as if going into tremendous distance, and at last died away altogether. And the man himself, asked both listeners, never returned. From that day to this has never been seen. At intervals for weeks and months afterwards, reports came in that he was still heard crying, always crying for help. With time, even these reports ceased. For most of us, 
he added under his breath. And that is all I know, a mere outline, as you see. The girl did not quite like the story, for the old man's manner made it too convincing. She was half disappointed, half frightened. See, there are the others coming home, she exclaimed with a note of relief, pointing to a group of figures moving over the snow near the pine trees. Now we can think of tea. She crossed the room to busy herself with the friendly tray as the servant approached to fasten the shutters. The priest, however, deeply interested, talked on with their host, though in a voice almost too low for her to hear. Only the final sentences reached her, making her uneasy, absurdly so, she thought, till afterwards. For matter, as we know, interpenetrates matter, she heard, and two objects may conceivably occupy the same space. The odd thing really is that one should hear, but not see. That airwaves should bring the voice, yet ether waves fail to bring the picture. And then the older man, as if certain places in nature, yes, invited the change, places where these extraordinary forces stir from the earth as from the surface of a living being with organs, places like islands, mountaintops, pine woods, especially pines isolated from their kind. You know the queer results of digging absolutely virgin soil, of course, and that theory of the earth's being alive. The voice dropped again. States of mind also helping the forces of the place, she caught the priest's reply in part, such as conditions induced by music, by intense listening, by certain moments in the mass even, by ecstasy, or... I say, what do you think? cried a girl's voice as the others came in with welcome chatter and odors of tweeds and open fields. As we passed your old haunted pine wood, we heard such a queer noise, like someone wailing or crying. Caesar howled and ran, and Harry refused to go in and investigate. He positively funked it. They all laughed. More like a rabbit in a trap than a person crying, explained Harry, a blush kindly concealing his startling pallor. I wanted my tea too much to bother about an old rabbit. It was some time after tea when the girl became aware that the priest had disappeared and, putting two and two together, ran in alarm to her host's study. Quite easily, from the hastily opened shutters, they saw his figure moving across the snow. The moon was very bright over the world, yet he carried a lantern that shone pale yellow against the white brilliance. "'Oh, for God's sake, quick!' she cried, pale with fear. "'Quick, or we're too late! Arthur's simply wild about such things. Oh, I might have known, I might have guessed, and this is the very night! I'm terrified!' By the time he had found his overcoat and slipped round the house with her from the back door, the lantern, they saw, was already swinging close to the pine wood. The night was still as ice, bitterly cold. Breathlessly they ran, following the tracks. Halfway his steps diverged, and were plainly visible in the virgin snow by themselves. They heard the whispering of the branches ahead of them, for pines cry even when no airs stir. "'Follow me close,' said the old man sternly. 
the lantern he already saw lay upon the ground unattended. No human figure was anywhere visible. See, the steps come to an end here, he whispered, stooping down as they reached the lantern. The tracks, hitherto so regular, showed an odd wavering. The snow curiously disturbed. Quite suddenly they stopped. The final step was a very long one, a stride almost immense, as though he was pushed forward from behind, muttered the old man, too low to be overheard, or sucked forward from in front, as in a fall. The girl would have dashed forward, but for his strong restraining grasp. She clutched him, uttering a sudden dreadful cry. Hark! I hear his voice! She almost sobbed. They stood still to listen. A mystery that was more than the mystery of night. "'closed about their hearts, a mystery that is beyond life and death, "'that only great awe and terror can summon from the deeps of the soul. "'Out of the heart of the trees, fifty feet away, "'issued a crying voice, half wailing, half singing, very faint. "'Help! Help!' it sounded through the still night. "'For the love of God, pray for me!' The melancholy rustling of the pines followed, and then again the singular crying voice shot past above their heads, now in front of them, now once more behind. It sounded everywhere. It grew fainter and fainter, fading away, it seemed, into distance that somehow was appalling. The grove, however, was empty of all but the sighing wind, the snow unbroken by any tread. The moon threw inky shadows, the cold bit. It was a terror of ice and death, and this awful singing cry. But why pray? screamed the girl, distracted, frantic with her bewildered terror. Why pray? Let us do something to help. Do something. She swung round in a circle, nearly falling to the ground. Suddenly she perceived that the old man had dropped to his knees in the snow beside her and was... Praying, because the forces of prayer, of thought, of the will to help alone can reach and succor him where he now is, was all the answer she got. And a moment later, both figures were kneeling in the snow, praying, so to speak, their very heart's life out. The search may be imagined, the steps taken by police, friends, newspapers, by the whole country, in fact. But the most curious part of this queer, higher space adventure is the end of it, at least the end so far as at present known. For, after three weeks, when the winds of March were a roar about the land, there crept over the fields towards the house the small, dark figure of a man. He was thin, pallid as a ghost, worn and fearfully emaciated, but upon his face and in his eyes were traces of an astonishing radiance, a glory unlike anything ever seen. It may, of course, have been deliberate, or it may have been a genuine loss of memory only. None could say. Least of all the girl whom his return snatched from the gates of death. But, at any rate, what had come to pass during the interval of his amazing disappearance he has never yet been able to reveal. 
and you must never ask me, he would say to her, and repeat even after his complete and speedy restoration to bodily health, for I simply cannot tell. I know no language, you see, that could express it. I was near you all the time, but I was also elsewhere and otherwise. End of Entrance and Exit Recording by Bernard Spiel B-E-R-N-A-R-D-S-P-I-E-L dot blogspot dot com Well, that's another fine night transmissions in the can. So, well, it's almost in the can. Before I go, I want to mention that you can write me, if you're so inclined, at nighttransmissions at gmail.com. I also want to mention that the website, www.nighttransmissions.com, is out there on the internet. And there's a good deal of ancillary material there. More details about the shows and even the occasional link to go a little bit deeper into the history of the show. Some people actually think it's worth a visit. Well, I don't want to lie to you. Nobody's ever actually told me that. On second thought, why shouldn't I lie to you? I mean, everybody lies to us, huh? It's a wonderful place. Free pretzels and beer. Go, go. You'll like it there. I'm Gary Clinton, and you're whoever the hell you are. Oh, but I call it love.